a program that forgives the remaining balance on your direct loans after you've made 120 qualifying payments under a qualifying repayment plan while working full-time for a qualifying employer. So, qualifying, that's going to be our new favorite word here today, <laughs> for sure. The nice thing about the employment certification form is it basically allows you to file with your employer like when your start date was, how long you've been working there, um, and, and then you can file that. They'll, they'll sign off on it, um, and then you file that with FedLoan, and it basically shows that you're working for a qualifying employer, and it also helps uh, credit your account for the payments that you've made during that time. You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. Welcome back to Financial Clarity for Doctors. I'm Rochelle Vanderzanden here again with my co-host, Corey Janoff. And we are here today with Spencer Salvador, who's another one of our colleagues. And Spencer is kind of our resident PSLF expert, public service loan forgiveness. He's actually written some blog posts for us. Yeah. And so we'll, we'll send you guys some links to that too. But we wanted to really take a deep dive into PSLF today. So we're going to talk about the different steps that you need to take to qualify for PSLF, some common mistakes that people are coming across, some negative news headlines. I'm sure a lot of you have read that. And then also a couple of steps that you can maybe take if you end up applying for public service loan forgiveness and your claim is denied. Maybe some alternatives there. So without any further ado, Spencer, you want to give us a little bit of overview of what PSLF is? Yeah. Thanks for having me on the, uh, the show here today, guys. Um, so yeah, the, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, um, basically it sounds like it was created back in, in 2007. In the act, it was the, uh, the College Cost Reduction and Access Act of 2007. Um, and, and what I thought I could do is just kind of define you know, what it is, um, what the, the Department of Education defines it as, and then we can kind of dive into the steps like you talked about. Um, so to read kind of for verbatim what the actual definition is, uh, they define it as a program that forgives the remaining balance on your direct loans after you've made 120 qualifying payments under a qualifying repayment plan while working full-time for a qualifying employer. So qualifying, that's going to be our new favorite word here today, <laughs> for sure. So let's maybe break that down. Qualifying loans, qualifying employer, qualifying repayment plan. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll start at the top. What are qualifying loans? Yeah, yeah. So. Qualifying loans, they have to have the word direct in the title, so they have to be under that direct loan umbrella. Um, and the easy thing is they actually put that in the title of the loan, so it's very obvious to know whether or not uh, you actually have those qualifying direct loans. Um, most servicers, you know, you can go onto the servicer website and just look up you know, the, the title of your loan, and as long as it has that word direct in it, you'll know that it is a, a qualifying um, loan for, for forgiveness. Um, if all of a sudden you know you have loans that don't have that word direct in the title, there are steps that you can take in order to make them qualify. It's the uh, um, direct loan consolidation loan is what they call it. And basically, you can take your non-qualifying loans and move them into a qualifying uh, loan program. And I feel like the term consolidation confuses people because the actual definition yeah. of consolidation, you're thinking of 
combining, consolidating, mm -hmm. um, you know, shrinking. Whereas in this, I think the more uh, the way it should be interpreted is it's more of a conversion. Yeah. So you don't have to combine all your loans into one. You you can convert your non-direct loans into direct exactly. loans. Yeah. And then I guess we'll get into this, this maybe in some of the missteps. But if you combine, if you actually do consolidate and combine them all into one big loan, that can cause some problems if you have some that are direct and some that aren't, and you've already been making qualifying payments. Exactly. Yeah. So what happens in that scenario is if all of a sudden you take you know, a couple of qualifying loans that are the direct loans and uh, you take your non-direct loans and then you do a consolidation with all of those, all of the payments that you had made towards your direct loans at that point, it'll restart the clock for the 10-year forgiveness. So, so if you've made 40, you've now made zero. Exactly. So if you're doing one of those direct consolidation loans, you really only want to include the loans that don't have that word direct in the title. So you can keep them, you can consolidate them separately exactly. from your other yeah. ones. Yeah. What are some examples of non-qualifying loans? Um, I mean, they have like the Stafford loans. The Perkins um, loans, Perkins I feel like loans. I've seen. Yeah, so there's a lot of different titles yeah. and stuff like that. There's actually a, a database that you can go on um, as well and view all of your loans at once. Um, it's called the National Student Loan Data System. Um, and basically, it'll it'll show a breakdown. It's like a centralized location of um, all the loans that you received. You know when they were dispersed and what the titles are and whatnot. So it makes it pretty easy to kind of figure out exactly which ones are qualifying and which ones aren't. That's nice. Yeah. So the next qualifying word: qualifying employers. Yeah, qualifying employer. So uh, these really, by definition. There, there's two different qualifying employers. There's the um, nonprofit institutions, which are the, the 501c3s of the world, um, and then there's the government agencies. So most government agencies do qualify for public service loan forgiveness, um, and then most, or I would say almost all, nonprofits do as well, the 501c3s. Mm -hmm. um, and then we can maybe talk a little bit about the employment certification form here, too. Perfect. Yeah. So. And then what are the qualifying repayment plans? Um, the qualifying repayment plans, I mean, those, those are all the, the income-driven repayment plans of the world. Um, so, you know, you've got your income-based repayment, you've got your pay-as-you-earn uh, repayment, and then you've got the revised pay-as-you-earn. So mm -hmm. the acronyms are IBR, pay-E is what people call it, and then the revised pay-E. Um, those are three of the income-driven repayment plans that qualify, and then there's also the, the standard 10-year payment amount that you can that qualifies as well mm -hmm. and not all loans are eligible for all of those payment options exactly yeah so depending on you know when they were dispersed and whatnot um, we'll tell you whether or not you can qualify for you know, that, that specific repayment plan usually you have to talk to the loan servicer to figure out exactly what repayment plan you're eligible for just because for a lot of circumstances it's not obvious um, and they'll be able to tell you, all right, you know, all of these loans, you know, they can qualify for these specific repayment plans, but maybe not for this one and so on and so forth. So IBR versus pay versus repay, what are the specific differences in those? Or the, I guess the big differences? Yeah. There's a lot of minor I mean, the biggest difference is how they calculate the payment amount. On IBR, it's 15% of your discretionary income, whereas pay and revised pays as you earn, it's 10%. So in most circumstances, you're going to pay a lower 
payment amount on the pay or the revised pay as you earn versus IBR. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I generally tell people if you can qualify for the pay as you earn repayment plan, um, that's probably going to be the best one. Right. And I know that there is a question on the application that you fill out to determine what your income-based repayment is, where you can literally just check a box that says enroll me in the one that's going to result in the lowest payment. Exactly. And sometimes I tell people just to do that if they're not sure what payment plan they might qualify for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some nuances with each that, you know, some have interest subsidies, others they don't cap your payments out at the 10-year standard, so mm-hmm. if all of a sudden you're making a ton of money, there's a chance that you could pay your loans off before they're forgiven. So you definitely, you know, want to kind of do your due diligence there before deciding exactly which payment plan to go on. And married filing jointly versus separately, I know is a trick that some people with certain payment plans, if you file separately, They'll only look at your individual income when factoring or calculating your payment, right. but others, if you file um, separately or jointly, I think it's repay, correct? That yep. it doesn't it's matter how you file, they're balance. looking at both exactly. incomes. Yeah. So that's a common question that we'll get is, you know, a lot of people will come to us and say, well, you know, I just got married or I've been married and, you know, does it make sense for us to file joint or separate? And, you know, full disclosure, this isn't tax advice, we're not CPAs mm-hmm. or anything like that, but a lot of it just comes down to kind of running two different scenarios. And unfortunately, you do have to have the loan servicer involved um, to get the payment estimates for each scenario. But what we typically advise is you want to have one scenario where you're filing joint and what the tax savings would be versus maybe what the extra payment amount is. Um, So you run that scenario, and then you run another scenario where you file separately what the extra tax payments are going to be versus the savings on your student loan payments. And then from there, it's just kind of crunching the numbers to see which one might make the most sense. So I know some people will maybe be on IBR and they'll notice that the payment on repay or pay as you earn might be a lower required payment than their IBR payment. So what happens, what, what's the process of switching and, and what happens when you actually switch from one payment plan to another? Is that advisable? Yeah, I mean, uh, again, a lot of it just depends on your own specific situation. But um, one thing that we found is if somebody's switching from one repayment plan to another, let's just say that they're on IBR and they want to switch to pay as you earn because you're going from 15% down to 10%, so it could be a lower payment amount. Um, A consequence is that the interest on your loans capitalizes at that point. And so what that means is the outstanding interest on your loans, it actually gets added to the principal balance. And so the interest moving forward then starts accruing off of that higher balance. Um, And and so, you know, your servicer will say, oh, you know, if we switch over to the pay-as-you-earn repayment plan, your your payment's actually going to be a little bit lower. But then they don't actually calculate the amount that will capitalize the interest on the loans. So what I've found from experience is that sometimes somebody will say, yeah, you know, you can save money um, by switching from IBR to pay as you earn. But then if they actually go in and do that and the interest on their loans capitalizes, that payment amount could then be either equal or higher than the amount that they were paying on the IBR. Um, So that's a big risk that you run is, you know, one, you might have a higher payment than you were expecting, but then two, you're now having to pay a lot more just in interest alone because it's accruing from that capitalized amount. So that's that's a big downside to that. And then the other thing is that um, if you switch repayment plans, uh, that 
so whenever you're going into a repayment plan, that's where the 10-year standard amount is calculated off of. So if all of a sudden you switch, you know, you're in residency and you um, transition into practice, if you switch repayment plans, the 10-year standard amount will be based off of the balance at the time that you switch, whereas before it's capped out at the 10-year standard amount when you originally entered the first repayment program uh, or the first you know the income-based repayment amount. So, which so we've talked about this before, Corey. Confusing. Yeah, two hundred thousand dollars of loans at the start of residency. Even with making income-driven payments, your balance is probably going to rise to about two fifty by the time you're done with a typical residency. Mm-hmm. So, your ten-year payment calculation could be twenty-five exactly. percent higher. Exactly. Based on that, I've also. Um, let me know if this isn't correct, but I've, I've run into some scenarios where people have switched and it takes a month to cycle through and they end up having to make a standard, a full standard payment during that gap month. Or go into deferment. Exactly, or forbearance, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so and, and that capitalizes your loans as well. So, so you might go from 200 a month to 4000 a month before you get down to the exactly. 150 a month payment. Exactly. Yeah. Be cautious. One thing that becomes very obvious when we talk about this, I feel like, is that it's very complicated. Yeah. And that what makes sense for one person is not going to necessarily make sense for another person. Exactly. So it always makes sense to comb through this in detail with, like, your loan servicer, hopefully a financial advisor, and probably a CPA, honestly. Yeah. Especially when it gets to the point where you're in practice and you're making a higher income. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, there's... It's just so dependent on your individual situation, and so there's not one specific repayment plan that's going to be the best fit for all um, and you know not everyone's going to file joint not everyone's going to file separately so so much of it just depends on their own individual circumstance mm-hmm. yeah right and you mentioned something earlier when we were talking about the word of the day qualifying mm-hmm. with the uh, employment certification form so maybe talk a little bit about that and, and why that's important and how often you recommend submitting that yeah. So the interesting thing is, um, you know, I think an article was published in, in January of 2019 this year um, talking about how like 99% of the people that had applied for forgiveness had been declined. So what they did is they actually came out with this form called the Employment Certification Form. And um, I've actually recently found out that they didn't release that form until 2012, hmm. whereas the program came out back in 2007. So there's that kind of five-year gap there where maybe a lot of people that thought they were, you know, on track to um, qualify didn't end up actually having this, you know, form filed showing that their employer was a qualifying employer for the program. Um, And so what we've been reading is a lot of the people that are getting rejected, they're either missing paperwork or, um, you know, maybe there's a section on the employment certification form that was filled out incorrectly. So... Maybe it Unfortunately, didn't yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, you really have to go in and like make sure that all of your paperwork's in order, all your ducks are in order. Um, just because they're, you know, it's a it's a big thing. You know, they're going to be just discharging millions of dollars of student loans, and so they want to make sure that they're doing everything correctly on their side to make sure that these people actually are eligible. Um, but yeah, the nice thing about the employment certification form is it basically allows you to file with your employer, like when your start date was, how long you've been working there, um, and, and then you can file that, they'll, they'll sign off on it, um, and then you file that with FedLoan, and it basically shows that you're working for a qualifying employer, and it also helps uh, credit your account for the payments that you've made during that time um, working there. So we usually recommend filing, 
filing it every single year just because, you know, it's important to have that paperwork in order. And I found that federal and servicing usually will only update the number of credited payments they have you down for after that form has been submitted. Exactly, yeah. And don't freak out if you haven't done it because you can do it retroactively. So even if you have left that employer, I think a lot of these HR like departments are getting used to seeing these forms even for past employees. Exactly. Like you can send it to your HR department wherever you were previously and you can still have those payments counted. It's just probably going to be more difficult if you don't work there exactly. anymore. Yeah. yeah, for a lot of our clients, you know, they'll start at one residency program and then maybe move on to a fellowship and we'll meet with them and they'll say, "Oh, you know, I haven't filed this form uh, for my previous employer." So yeah, it's a lot of maybe emailing or faxing the form to them for them to sign off and then having them send it back to you and, and then actually uploading it to the FedLoan website. But um, at least, you know, it's something now that they're making available to people. That way they can kind of keep track of the payments as they go along instead of waiting for the, the magical, you know, 10-year day or whatever. Yeah. And it's actually a really easy form to find. If you literally Google PSLF form, mm-hmm. it is the first thing that comes up. So it's the employment certification form. And it takes a little while for them to process that form. So don't expect an email confirmation the day after you upload it saying everything's good. You might have to wait three, six, nine months before it actually gets processed. So obviously not filing the employment certification form is one problem that people sometimes have. What are some other common mistakes that you see? Um... Common mistakes, I mean, one of the big ones is, you know, a lot of people, uh, they might have multiple jobs that they work at, and by definition, you do need to be working full-time in order to qualify for the public service loan forgiveness. Now, you can have a couple of different employers, but basically combined, if you're working, you know, part-time at one employer, part-time at another, you have to have at least 30 hours per week that you're working combined there um, to be technically full-time under their definition. So that's mm-hmm. another one is just making sure that um, you know, you're know you considered a, a full-time employee. Um, that's a, probably a, a big one that we see. Um, and then I, I would say the biggest thing is the employment certification form for mm-hmm. sure. Um, you know, maybe talking a little bit about the uh, repayment plans and you know for a lot of the people that we work with they are in training um, I'd say a, a common mistake that we see just because some folks can't afford it or at least that's what they say is that they're not making payments on their loans during deferment exactly during mm-hmm. uh, they're either in deferment or forbearance and I always encourage people if, if you are truly wanting to take advantage of the program bite the bullet, you know, go ahead and make the payments. I mean, it might be a a couple of hundred bucks per month that you're having to pay towards them, um, hopefully less. But if you can get that clock started early on while your income's a lot lower than it's going to be as you make the transition into practice, then um, it's just going to have, you know, that many more payments under your belt that you'll have forgiven. So At a lower payment level. Yeah, $300 payment in residency is the equivalent of a $3,000 payment in practice. So the more of those $300 payments you can make, every one you make is one less $3,000 payment you have to make in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually another common thing is um, as people make the transition into practice, they'll oftentimes come to us and say, hey, you know, I can't, my servicer said I can't qualify for the income-based repayment anymore based off of my income. It's too high. Um, And and so the biggest thing that you you really need to realize is when you're on these repayment programs, 
um, the income-based repayment one and then the pay-as-you-earn, it caps your payment out at the 10-year standard amount when you originally entered the program. So if all of a sudden you make the transition into practice and your loan servicer is telling you that your income is too high to qualify for an income-driven repayment plan, um, it's technically true, but you can still stay on that program. They're just going to cap your payment out at the 10-year standard amount. Mm -hmm. And so just to think about it from, you know, kind of a... A, a physician's trajectory. Let's just say that we've got a, a family practice physician starting like first year resident. They make three years of qualifying payments while they're in training and then they transition into practice. Um, what'll happen is if all their if all of a sudden their income at you know the time that they transition into practice is so high, what the uh, servicer will do is they'll cap your payment out at whatever the 10 year standard amount was when you originally entered the program as a first-year resident. And so theoretically, in this scenario, you would have just seven years under the 10-year standard repayment amount that you would have to pay, and then after that, that amount would be forgiven, the remainder that's left over. So theoretically, it would be three years of the 10-year standard repayment amount, three years of payments that you would have forgiven at the end of it. So. Mm -hmm. um, Plus any interest that accumulated that yeah. you weren't covering. Anytime, anytime that your employer, or excuse me, the uh, the servicer is telling you that you don't qualify for a repayment plan, I would I would strongly encourage you to either go online and you know use the resources on studentloan.gov or talk to your financial advisor um, and just ask them for confirmation. You know because a lot of times the unfortunately the information that some of the the you know, people in the call centers for the servicers, it, it can be um, misinformation that they're providing you. Sometimes I literally just tell people if they get an answer that they think is incorrect, hang up and call back again and talk to a yeah. different person because you're probably going to get a different answer. And I do feel like it's gotten a little bit better, but still, like people make errors. Right. Yeah. And there's a lot more information out there now than there used to be. Um, one of the best resources that um, we, we recommend for our clients is the, the Frequently Asked Questions site, um, just because it lists off probably over a hundred different questions that a lot of people will ask. And in there, you can go in and read about what is going to be, you know, kind of the, the correct answer for you or the, the correct information. And it's directly from the, the studentloan.gov uh, website. So, you know, it is obviously credible and uh, hopefully it's going to be accurate for you. And what about people who are skeptical as to the ability of this program to actually deliver on the supposed promise of forgiving their loans and they decide, well, just I'm going to make extra payments on my loans just, just in case, case you yeah. know, the 10 years comes up, what happens in that the scenario? The age old, is the government going to honor their pinky promise question? So or more so like what about, what do extra payments do while oh, you're on a... Yeah. So extra payments, they, they really do nothing beneficial for you towards the, the public service loan forgiveness program. Um, because what you're technically doing is actually paying ahead, I think is what you're kind of referring to mm -hmm. there, Corey. Um, and so let's say that your payment amount is, you know, a thousand bucks a month, but all of a sudden you're paying $2,000 a month. Technically what you're doing is you're paying ahead by one month. And that $2,000, it doesn't then count for, you know, two qualifying payments. Each payment that you make, it's only that one qualifying payment. Um, and, and so... Theoretically, it's just kind of wasting money at the end of the day because, you know, it's more money that you're just not going to have forgiven by the end of it. Um, but then it also puts you into what's called paid-ahead status. And so if all of a sudden you're in paid-ahead status, any payments that you're making while you're in paid-ahead status, 
don't qualify for public service loan forgiveness. Um, so you want to make sure that, like, a common example that we see is um, for people that are working at the VA, the VA oftentimes will um, basically reimburse uh, payment amounts up to $24,000 per year. So a lot of folks, what they like to do is make sure that they're paying at least $2,000 a month, you know, the 24000 a year, to then get the full reimbursement amount from their um, employer. But if you do that and all of a sudden, you know, you uh, your payment's only, you know, $1,000 a month, you're going to be in pay-to-head status. And so each payment that you make throughout the year, it's not going to count towards the, the loan forgiveness program because you're in that status. So you want to reach out to the loan servicer and you can actually request that they permanently remove the, the pay-to-head status um, from your account. And so that way you don't run into that issue anymore. And so if all of a sudden you, you know, are overpaying or because of the, the reimbursement from your employer, you're overpaying, um, the payments that you'll be making will still qualify towards it. And can that be applied retroactively? So if you were accidentally in pay-to-head status and then you called Fed Loans or whoever the servicer is to remove that pay-to-head status, would maybe those past few payments that you'd made then qualify even though they hadn't? What I've seen is they'll actually reimburse the amount that you paid over that amount. Interesting. They'll, they'll reimburse you for it um, and then the, all the payments that you had made you know, Are during qualified. that time. Yeah, exactly. So it's definitely definitely tricky there, the, the pay-to-head status. It's crazy that they basically penalize you for trying to be proactive about your students. Exactly. Yeah. So maybe let's talk about some of those negative headlines some more. <laughs> so, so, yeah, the, the biggest thing, the negative headlines. So, yeah, going back to that article, you know, back in January, that was po- published about the, the 99% of the people um, have, who have applied have been declined. It's very misleading. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the government came out, I think, back in September of 2018 and basically estimated that only 700 people at that point were eligible to have their loans forgiven. And what had happened is over 28,000 people had been applying during that time. So, you know, where's the discrepancy there? They're estimating, you know, 700 people are going to be eligible, but 28,000 are, are applying. Um, the, the big thing that we're seeing is a lot of the, a lot of the, um, the, the people that are getting declined, they didn't have qualifying loans when the, the program first came out. So the, the program first came out back in October of 2007, and as a reminder, you have to have direct loans in order to qualify. Um, most loans back then, they weren't direct loans. They were like the old FFEL loans, they had some old Grad Plus loans, um, and some other loan types. And so... The people that had been making payments, you know, at that point thought, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to be able to qualify. This is a cool new program, so I'm good to go. They didn't really take any action on it. Um, but, you know, what they realized is, oh, shoot, you know, maybe a couple of years later, oh, you have to have direct loans in order to qualify. And so at that point, they had to then consolidate their loans into the direct loan umbrella, and that restarts the clock for the 10-year standard um, uh, or excuse me, the ten-year forgiveness program. So you know, a lot of these people they were making payments for like three, four years, and then they consolidated and it restarted the clock. They weren't really aware of that, and so they think, you know, oh, it's been ten years now, I'm good to go. But really, maybe they have another, you know, three, four years or whatever it might be. So there's definitely some scary headlines out there. Um, the the you know the the uh, public service loan forgiveness program has actually been on the. Um, United States uh, budget proposal for the last like four years 
Um, and if you go in and you actually read in the Department of Education uh, under the budget proposal about the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, it says that the budget proposes it'll eliminate the program, and it's been saying that for the last three, four years. Obviously, they haven't done anything yet, but when you go in and you actually read uh, the, the budget proposal, it goes on to say um, all of these changes will uh, occur for loans originating on or after July 1st of the following year. So like for example, it's 2019 for the 2020 budget proposal. Right now it says it's on the chopping block, but it's only for loans on or originating uh, after like July 1st of 2020. So only for new borrowers. Exactly, only for new borrowers. All the people that are currently making payments right now, they're being grandfathered in. Um, So that's all the legislation that we've been seeing come out about it is that, you know, if they do end up you know, getting rid of the program, it's just going to be for new borrowers, people that aren't already paying on their loans. And just to reiterate, nothing official has been passed into law. So, like, no changes have been made. These are just rumors of proposals that are uh, potentially happening. Exactly. And then I think, I mean, there's even some some talk that maybe Fed loans was a little bit of a problem themselves. Like they just haven't done a great job in administering the program, and that's part of the problem. Just like even things like people filing their paperwork and then the payments not being counted accurately, that kind of stuff. So we always encourage our clients to be really proactive about comparing how many loans or how many payments they have on their paperwork and how many they think they've made and that kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I actually read an article recently, too. There's so much news about this program. It's just everywhere. But there was one that basically said that there were a handful of senators that were requesting the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau investigate Fed loans and just figure out if they're doing their job. And I think one thing that that tells you is that Congress passed this law. They expect that it will be implemented how it was passed. Right. So even if maybe we're seeing a lot of negative headlines that it's not working out, it it should work, and the law is what it is. I know it's hard to believe that a government entity (laughs) is having problems implementing what they supposedly (laughs) promised, but I think the biggest thing is just there's a lot of confusion. This act was passed back in 2007 as part of a broader spectrum of things, and and, most people weren't even aware of it until maybe five, six, seven years ago. Um, and, and a lot of the loans that are eligible for forgiveness weren't even issued until after 2010. So, you know, some of these negative headlines, like Spencer said, are misleading. Um, a lot of it's just lack of awareness on all parties. You know, mm-hmm. the servicing providers don't know the rules. The borrowers don't know the rules. Like, So I think now, over the last year, we've really seen a lot of improvement in the communication, Fed Loan Servicing, um, or the Department of Education's website is a very useful resource, and they've, over the last handful of months, published a lot of very helpful um, tools, pages, inform- information for you. So definitely check out their website if you have questions. That FAQ page is super helpful. They've got a good you know, tutorial on steps to qualify. So if you kind of want a, a summarized reiteration of today's podcast, go check that out. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll include some links in the show notes, too, so that you guys don't go have to go digging for that. Yeah. So you can just follow some links and read a little bit more about it. But yeah. I think there are some key takeaways we should probably focus on a little bit. Just Yeah, I mean, for me personally, like the key takeaway is don't just sit there and, you know, kind of 
not take action. I mean, the biggest thing is, you know, if you're hoping to qualify for public service loan forgiveness, there are steps that you have to take. There's action that you have to take in order to make sure that you're eligible for it. Um, so just to kind of summarize, you know, you one have to make 120 qualifying payments. So 10 years of monthly payments, you have to have qualifying loans. So your loans have to have that word direct in the title. You have to work for a qualifying employer. So they have to be a government agency or a nonprofit 501c3. And then you have to be on a, a qualifying repayment plan. So the income driven mm-hmm. repayment plans and then the, the 10 year standard repayment amount. Yeah. And then after all of that, that's when your loans will be forgiven. But um, you want to make sure that you're filing the employment certification form, making sure you're on a qualifying repayment plan, you've got qualifying uh, loans and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I, uh, the biggest thing is just you, you know not sitting on your hands, doing nothing. Definitely want to take action on it. And loans aren't automatically forgiven. After that 120th qualifying payment has been made, there's another form the PSLF, uh, I forget the exact title, like loan forgiveness application that you have to fill out and submit, and then it could take several months for them or longer for them to process right. to actually forgive uh, your loans. So it's not something, you, again, be proactive, take action. You got to stay on top of things, keep detailed records of everything because miscalculations have been known to happen. But, you know, if you do have you know, if you have done your job and done it correctly, then they will correct those mistakes if you can, you know, show them I actually did work for the right employer and made payments during this time. And I guess maybe lastly, let's kind of touch on PSLF may not be for everyone. It may not make sense for everybody. I like to tell clients not to focus all of their career choices on PSLF. Like that is not the only thing that should be dictating your career decisions. If it makes sense for you, if you want to be an academic physician or if you want to work at the VA or something like that, then absolutely let's do our best to qualify for loan forgiveness. But if that's not what you want to do, maybe we should look at some other alternatives. Like there are other ways to go about paying off your loans, the old fashioned way and refinancing and things like that. So just make sure that you're you're giving everything a little bit of thought and not just assuming that one choice over another is the right choice for you. I would say the larger your loan balance and the lower your income potential given your specialty, the more attractive PSLF is. Definitely. You know, like if you're in a surgical specialty and can potentially make $500,000 in a private practice, it may not make sense to take half as much working at a government entity to qualify for loan forgiveness when you could just pay them off with the difference in salary over a two-year span, you know, assuming that's the route you want to go professionally. Mm-hmm. So you know, everyone's situation is different. There is no one-size-fits-all approach. Any last thoughts, Spencer? No, I totally agree. Yeah. Um. Hopefully this was helpful. If you guys have any specific questions, you're always welcome to reach out to us, and we can make sure you have access to Spencer, too, if you have specific questions for him. Thank yeah, you. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on LinkedIn as well. 
Check out all the podcast episodes on thefinitygroup.com slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our blog, thefinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Affinity Group, LLC.